You're listening to a message from Mercy Culture Church, home of Pastor Landon and Heather Schott in Fort Worth, Texas. For more information about Mercy Culture and ways that you can be a part of it, visit mercyculture.com. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much. Please be seated. Hey, I thank you. Feel the love. I, I have some exciting news for you that normally when you hear people saying the Hebrew says from the pulpit, even if they're correct in what it says, they almost always get the Hebrew wrong. So good job, Chris, Mafalti, rescuer, deliverer, straight from Psalm 18 in the Hebrew. You got it right. So that blessed me. I mean, God's not hung up on that. He'll, even if you mispronounce it, he knows what you're saying. But I, I didn't say it the first service, so good job there. Um, been a joy to be with you on a regular basis, deeply connected with Mercy Culture and Spiritual Leadership School. So how many students do we have here at SLS? All right, great. How many of you are, are incoming? You're gonna start the first year soon, okay. So Thursdays, Thursdays once a month in the school year, I'm with the, it'll be the second year, and Fridays will be with the first year, so can't wait to get to be with you on a regular basis. All right, uh, I brought two things with me today, plus the message, one inanimate and the other animate, so I'll, I'll introduce the living being first. Uh, Andrew, stand up, our grandson Andrew, with me on a trip here. 18 years old and about to, to go off to college, so we've been wanting to do a ministry trip together. I thought, what better place than Mercy Culture? So we enjoyed Fort Worth last, he was actually born in Fort Worth, so he doesn't remember it though, he does not remember it. Uh, all right, the other thing I brought with me is my newest book. I've never written a book that was any more urgent than this. It's called The Silencing of the Lambs. It has an extraordinary cover also. The ominous rise of cancel culture and how we can overcome it. Uh, look, I'm, I'm not one of these gloom and doom people, like the sky's falling, and I, I'm full of faith and optimism and confidence. I'm also in touch with what's happening in the world around us. Every week I write five op-ed articles, in other words, commenting on what's happening in the culture. Every day, five days a week, a live radio broadcast. So we are right on the bleeding edge of what's happening. And there is an attack and pressure against the church that we've never seen before in our country. And it's not just an attempt to demonize us and marginalize us, but actually to cancel us, to remove our voice, to remove our platform. So the first half of this book will shock you. In fact, when I have a new book come out, by the time the book is out, I've already written one or two more books and I'm working on another. So when a new book comes out, I do a lot of interviews, media interviews on the book. So that means I have to refocus on that book. So what I've done as a little exercise in recent years is I buy the audio version of my own book and then listen to it. And I have to tell you, even though I wrote this, I was shocked by the content. I wrote it, but I was shocked when I heard it like, oh my, that is intense. But the book is not gloom and doom. The second half of the book is strategies. What we can do to turn the tide. Because friends, the church of Jesus cannot be canceled. The word of God cannot be bound. 
You put us in prison like Paul, we write letters that change the world. You try to silence us, God turns it into a platform. So this is the only book of ours that we shipped over. Check it out on the way out, get multiple copies. Trust me, it will open your eyes, it will stir you, and then it will build your faith supernaturally. So Pastor Landon reached out to me and said, can you come speak in, in July? Of course, I was with you last month and we'll be back with some other leaders, God willing, next month. But he said, we're, we're, we're focusing on kingdom relationships and advancing God's kingdom through strategic relationships. So I prayed into it. God gave me a message and theme I have never preached on in my entire life. I've, I've brought thousands and thousands of messages over the years. But today's the first day that I spoke on this and I, I believe God is gonna use this in strategic ways in your own life. So let's pray right now. Abba, Father, we've worshiped you and honored you. Now give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your people. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I wanna open up three scriptures to you, beginning in John chapter 17. This is the great prayer that Jesus prays before he is betrayed and crucified. And in this prayer, as he's pouring his heart out to his heavenly father, he says this in verse three. Now this is eternal life. Not this is the way to eternal life, but this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus the Messiah whom you sent. Again, he does not say this is the way to eternal life, but this is eternal life itself, knowing God and knowing his son. In other words, eternal life consists of a relationship. And life consists of relationships. When you are isolated and left alone, it cuts off a major source of your life. That's why one of the most cruel punishments is solitary confinement when you were cut off from everyone else. Before I was saved, many of you know my testimony, I was a crazy drug user from the ages of 14 to 16. So, so my testimony is literally from LSD to PhD. That clapping was not because I did drugs, but because God set me free from drugs. <laughs> the clapping was just a little premature, but I knew what it was for. Yeah, praise God. But my friends, my best friends, we're starting to come to faith. So they were back and forth, getting high, going to church. And, but they were coming back from church services and preaching the gospel to me and talking about heaven and hell. And so one night we were hanging out together and one of the crazy drug things that I would do is I would do hallucinogenic drugs and then huff diesel gas. Like I said, it was a crazy drug user. And I had this out of body experience where I thought I was in hell. And initially I thought, well, it's not so bad. And, and then I thought, well, I'll, I'll just listen to some music with people. I thought, there are no people. Well, I'll just do this with people. There are. Suddenly I realized I was alone forever. And terror absolutely gripped me. And it was, it was, regardless of how real the experience was or how much it was like hell or not, it jarred me. But it helped me to realize if, if you are alone, you can't, you can't share anything with anyone. There's a silly joke, but it illustrates a point that there was a pastor who loved playing golf. He was obsessed with it. 
but the golf club in his, in his neighborhood was always filled. So whenever you're, I don't play golf, but I understand that you got people behind you and groups behind you, you got to keep moving. And he could never really enjoy it. He wanted to take his time and savor each shot in the moment. Well, Sunday morning, the place was always empty. The problem is he's a pastor. He's in church Sunday morning. So he concocts a plan. He's going to fake that he's sick. <coughs> he's going to tell his wife and kids, I, I, I just need to rest. He calls his associate pastor. He says, hey, I'm sick. He's coughing on the phone. He says, could you handle the services for me Sunday morning? Yes, pastor, we got you covered. You just rest. So everybody leaves for the service. So it worked. It worked. He throws his golf clubs in the trunk of his car. He drives to the, to the, uh, the, the golf course. It's empty. Empty. Well, the angels of the Lord see what he's doing. And they approach God as he's getting out of his car. And they said, God, what do we do? And God says, give him a hole in one on the first hole. And the angels say to God, what? And God says, who is he gonna tell? It's a silly story, but you get the point when, when something wonderful happens in your life and you can't share it. When you're in your deepest pain and you, you just want someone there and there's no one there, you realize the importance of life and the importance of relationships in life. In fact, a study was done among Holocaust victims and survivors. And what was discovered was that the people whose primary identity was their standing in society, you're a mayor of a city, you're a rich businessman, you're, you're a famous actor or actress, and now you're stripped of everything. You're in, a, you're in a concentration camp, your head's been shaved, your body's been shaved, your clothes have been taken, you have a number tattooed on your arm, and that's what you're reduced to. Those people crumbled the fastest. But the people that had friends, that had loved ones in particular, family members, they were the ones that made it better. Because that relationship carried, public identity can be gone in a second, fame, wealth can be gone in a second. But those relationships are, are what make us. Look at what Jesus says, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, he is about to be betrayed. This is the last meal that he's gonna have with his disciples. Look at what he says. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus wanted to be with his friends. Think of it. These were fallen human beings. He knows Peter's about to betray him. He, he knows that, that Peter's going to deny him, say, I never knew you. All the guys are going to scatter, and of course, Judas is going to turn him over. But he, th these were his friends, aside from Judas, and he couldn't wait to be with them. This is the last meal, and he wants to eat with them. One other verse to look at in Luke chapter 16. Jesus gives what's known the parable of the dishonest steward. And many people wonder, like, what was the point of it? Was he commending dishonesty? What was he saying? Well, well here's the, the lesson from it. And this is the NLT. So this is a slight paraphrase. Here's the point of the parable. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. In other words, the worldly wealth and resources you have will, will be gone one day, but you can use them to make eternal friends because those will last forever. 
The relationships will outlast that. It could be donating money to missions and people are one to Jesus through that. And now forever and ever you have these eternal relations. But he's saying you can even take worldly wealth and resources and use that to make friends, not through bribes, but through the kingdom. And those friends and friendships will last forever. So as I was praying about what to bring, God began to bring to mind strategic relationships that I've had over the years. Some very obvious, some that seemed like something negative at the time, but God used it for his kingdom purposes. So I wanna share this with you to encourage you to be alert to these things. When you realize there's something going on with it, that perhaps God wants to use this to advance his kingdom. Perhaps it's something that strikes you at, at the moment as negative and difficult, but God has something good to bring out of it. So I'm gonna go through some of these, starting with Rabbi William Berman and Jewish ministry. This is a picture of me in, in one of the debates I've done with, with rabbis. So I get radically saved in 1971. I'm not from a religious Jewish family. I was bar mitzvah at 13, so part of the ceremony I had to learn to chant a portion of, 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 of scripture in Hebrew, but I didn't even know what I was saying. In other words, I didn't understand the words. I never even bothered to look up the English to see what it was. That's, that's how superficial my, my Jewish experience was. I was not a religious, committed Jew. But still being Jews, we don't believe in Jesus, right? So my dad comes to me early on and says, Michael, I'm thrilled you're off drugs, but we're Jews, we don't believe in this. So he brings me to meet the local rabbi. He's 11 years older than me. He's fresh out of Jewish theological seminary, brilliant guy, and he takes a tremendous personal interest in me. And we begin to talk by the hour. One of the first books he gives me is a book on anti-Semitism in church history. And it's a shocker to read these things. And, and he begins to challenge me. And, and he's saying, look, you're, you're, the New Testament misquotes the Old Testament. And these things you claim are messianic prophecies, they're not. And you're misunderstanding our Bible and so on. And he's really passionate about this. And I, I said, to, and he said, look, you don't know Hebrew. And I said, well, in the meantime, I'm, I'm using the the, the Hebrew dictionary in the back of Strong's Concordance. He said, meantime, shmeantime. If you don't understand Hebrew, it doesn't mean anything. And then he brought me to other rabbis and other rabbis and they all challenged me. So at one point I was memorizing 20 verses a day. By the time I was 18, I read the Bible cover to cover about five times through and memorized probably over 4,000 verses. And I'd mow down anybody. You come up to me, a cult person or someone Jehovah's Witness or some weird belief man. I didn't have all the compassion and wisdom, but I'd mow you down with the Bible. <laughs> scripture, scripture, man, I could do that. Nobody could stand up to me. Now I meet these rabbis and I'm quoting all my scriptures like machine gun and they're like, oh no, it's a terrible translation. And you look at some of what the Hebrew says and they're being very nice and they're, they're saying, look, we'll show. And now I feel like a little kid because they're going letter by letter and I don't even, I can't even read the stuff. And so as a result of that, I felt I've got to really study Hebrew and I've got to have answers because at this time, late 60s, early 70s, it was called the Jesus People Movement or the Jesus Revolution. So a massive number of hippies, radicals, rebels got dramatically saved at that time. We came through the counterculture movement of the 60s. In fact, there's a saying, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. <laughs> anyway, we'll let that sink in. So 
we're all getting saved left and right. Many Jews among us, but then they talked to the local rabbi and the rabbi would raise this objection to that and they were falling away. So I began to get burdened by that. And I said, I need to get answers. I went to Christian scholars and they were brilliant, but they had no, no sensitivity towards the Jewish objections. And then the Jewish believers I knew, they were just evangelists. They were great soul winners, but, but they didn't know how to answer the objections. So I felt, I've got to do this. So over the years, I wrote five volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus, which became basically the, the gold standard. And, and rabbis would, would debate our people, Jewish believers, and just demolish us. So I felt that's not, that's not right. So God raised me up. Uh, here's one of my debates with Rabbi Shmuley, known as America's most famous rabbi. He came to national prominence when Michael Jackson reached out to him for help. And you know what Shmuley told him? Michael, you need Jesus. <laughs> Seriously. But Shmuley and I, the two of us have done probably 20 debates. Here, here look at this. I have debated more rabbis, done more public debates with rabbis than any other human being on the planet. Any other Jewish believer on the planet, I've done more debates with rabbis than anyone else. As a result of a strategic relationship with Rabbi William Berman, who challenged me. It was very difficult, the challenges, because I didn't know anything. I was brand new. I knew the Lord, but I didn't have the answers. And all these other rabbis he brought me to, some of those times were traumatic because here are these very sincere men, very devout, and I can't answer them. And they're telling me my English translation is wrong, and I can't argue with them. And I thought, I don't want anyone else to have to go through that trauma. I want to provide solid answers. Check this out. This is a leading Messianic Jewish scholar. This, when one of my books came out on Messianic prophecy, Michael Brown has established himself as the foremost Messianic apologist in the world. You know what I thought when I read that? He's right, I'm number one among one. There's nobody else doing it. It's like playing center on the pygmy basketball team. You don't have to be that tall. Thank God there are many others doing great work raised up, but, but there's almost no one else doing this. God raised me up to meet a need and to fill a void. And it came out of a relationship that was established by God completely outside of me. My dad asked me to meet the rabbi. And I was challenged by the rabbi. Right now, the world's most effective social media Jewish outreach is one for Israel. You may have seen some of their videos, amazing testimonies. Uh, Eitan Bar, you'll always see his face in, his, in Israeli doing an amazing work with the team there. Their videos in Hebrew and Arabic have been viewed about 30 million times, whereas the total population of Israel, Jew, Arab, is about 9 million. So th think of that. And then hundreds of millions of, of views of, of their stuff in English. Amazing outreach. Well, Eitan wrote his first book a few years ago. This is what he put at the beginning of it. Special thanks to Dr. Michael Brown, who without knowing, gave me the passion for Jewish evangelism and apologetics. I had no clue. I know they reached out to us early on, said, can we take your material and break it down into bite-sized portions in Hebrew and get it out? But I didn't know that I was the inspiration behind that. Once again, something unintended by me, but look at what God did by having that local rabbi befriend me and challenge me. You don't know some relationships in your life that seem to be difficult, challenging. They may be just what God has planned to bring out something amazing. 
And, and here, uh, Ron Cantor, he's one of the leading Messianic Jewish voices now in Israel. Uh, he was a student of mine in the mid-1980s at a Bible college on Long Island. God supernaturally connected us. So he was a spiritual son, but now a cherished friend, a co-worker. We're here right in Dallas. David Rudolph, one of the leading Messianic Jewish scholars in the world, PhD from Cambridge University, heads up Jewish studies department at the King's University with Gateway. He was one of my students in the late 80s, early 90s. And look at where God brought him. All that to say that none of this might have happened if I wasn't challenged to learn Hebrew by this rabbi. Let's go on. Leonard Ravenhill and the connection to revival. You may know his most famous book, Why Revival Tarries. If you've never read it, it'll rock your world. And everyone who's read it can quote from it. You know, we have many organizers, few agonizers, these famous quotes. And he'd have these little pithy quotes all the time like this. Is the world crucified to you or does it fascinate you? One of his most famous quotes, in fact, it's on his, his tombstone. Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? Boo, pierces the heart. Or another Ravenhill quote, the man who's intimate with God will never be intimidated by man. So in 82, 83, during a time of great awakening in my own spiritual life, I read Why Revival Tarries and Revival Praying, some of his other books. Then I heard him preach in Brooklyn Tabernacle in 83. He was 76 years old. The most convicting message I ever heard. And altars filled with people weeping before God. In 1989, I wrote my first book on revival. And in 83, God had promised me in deep intercession and agony of prayer that I would serve as a leader in a revival that would touch the whole world. When he first spoke it to me, I thought, you're crazy, you've gone off the deep end, but I couldn't shake it. It stayed with me for years. I prayed, I fasted, I cried out. Finally, God released me to write this book in 89, the end of the American gospel enterprise, a call to repentance with a promise of revival. And, and, and I knew in my heart, Leonard Ravenhill would write the forward to it. Then my mind said, is he alive? Is he even alive? But I knew in my heart, and God supernaturally connected us. It's a story I can't tell here, but it was a supernatural connection. He was 82, I was 34. He asked me, he said, I've only done this with maybe a half dozen people, but will you be my friend? I thought, well, I, I'm 34 years old. You're a giant in God, giant in the faith. When we prayed together the first time at his home, I was literally on my face sobbing. I had never prayed with a human being that, that talked to God the way he did. To this day, I have never prayed with anyone that had that relationship with God that he did. Would I be his friend? Are you kidding me? So we became close friends the last five years of his life. And when I would write a new book, the next book was How Saved Are We? He would then, I'd send him a case of the books and he'd send them out to different leaders. So he sent one of my books, came out in 92, to a missionary that had just returned from Argentina with his family. He sent him that book. That missionary reached out to me and said, hey, I've written something, would you endorse it? That's how I got to know that missionary named Steve Hill. In turn, God uses Steve Hill to ignite the Brownsville Revival. And because of my connection with Steve, 11 months into the Brownsville revival, I finally get there at Steve's invitation and immediately God calls me to be part of the leadership and the rest, as they say, is history. Some of you remember Steve preaching. What a brother, burning with fire, greatest evangelist ever knew in America. 
and, and, and used by God to ignite what has been called the longest running local church revival in American history. Think of it, people came from over 130 nations, more than 3 million cumulative attendance, more than 300,000 different people responding to the altar calls. People getting online at six in the morning for the doors to open at six at night for the service to start at seven to go past midnight, night in, night out for years. Here's a message where I'm preaching in Brownsville, typical altar call, night in, night out, all the way down the aisles into the overflow buildings, people repenting, getting right with God. To this day, as I travel the world, people come up to me, people I've never met, and they say, God touched me in Brownsville, and they start crying. They say, I've never been the same. It's over 20 years later. How is it that I was part of that revival? How is it that that promise that God gave me that I'd serve as a leader in the revival would touch the world? How is it that it came to pass through a relationship with Leonard Ravenhill that connected me to Steve Hill? Who knew? I knew God was connecting us and I knew it was a confirmation of the promise, but that relationship led to another relationship which led to me serving the privilege of a lifetime to serve in this. And God spoke to me soon on, as soon as I got there, that we needed to raise up a school of ministry. And that school of ministry produced graduates so that we had to launch our own missions organization, Fire International. We sent out over the years, probably over 350 different people overseas to missions to about 40 different countries. We have people currently in over 20 nations of the world. Our team in the Philippines alone probably has about 50 men, women, and children. And they're bearing fruit and they're raising up people and sending them out. My first time in the Philippines, I met some of the students in the ministry school there that some of our grads had raised up and they came up to me, they said, hello, grandfather. They said, we are the spiritual children of your spiritual children, so you are our grandfather. <laughs> this was all out of a kingdom relationship with Leonard Ravenhill. And some of our other grads, maybe you know Daniel Kalenda, took over Reinhard Bonnke's ministry. God's used him to literally lead millions of people to Jesus. Literally, he's another grad touched in the fire of revival. Or how about Ward Simpson? Another of our students, now the, the CEO, president and CEO of God TV, touching millions of people. And, and, and he felt he had to shift the vision of God TV when he took it over. And, and the Lord said to him one day, because he wanted people to re remember and understand what the vision was, the Lord said, what's important to you? He said, well, Israel's important, Lord. He said, what else is important? He said, revival. He said, what else is important? He said, souls. And the Lord said, good. Just not in that order, because that spells IRS. It's not the best motto. Just turn it around. Souls, Israel, revival, sir. So every morning, Ward gets up and says, yes, sir. That's to the Lord, a simple way to remember the vision. Right now, we have missionaries who were touched in the fires of revival, graduated from our school of ministry. They're in, in Kurdistan, northern Iraq. They are literally preaching in mosques. Several times this has happened where they have been invited as Christians to preach in mosques. Now the, the persecution is also increasing and the opposition is increasing. But one of the brothers told me in my home face to face when he preached in a mosque, he said the imam standing right next to him, maybe a hundred people there. He started off and he had words about two people with medical conditions and suddenly two women in the back of the building fell to the ground. 
The imam said, what just happened? He said, well, let's wait for them to stand up and tell us. <laughs> a few minutes later, they get up. They're both miraculously healed. They had those conditions. They're miraculously healed. I mean, they preach Jesus. They give out Bibles. This all came out of a kingdom relationship. It's quite extraordinary. How about this? Brother Yesu Padam in India. Brother Yesu Padam is a couple years older than me. One of my dearest friends on the planet and the truest Christian that I know on the planet and the most apostolic man that I know on the planet and a man who would never dream of using that title for himself. Uh, he was an untouchable. He was so impoverished growing up that he almost died of malnutrition. A Canadian missionary found him dying on the side of the road and brought him to a hospital. It was months of rehab. He was that sick. But he so hated the caste system that he grew up with that when he was 11 years old, he was recruited by a local communist called a Naxalite, a Maoist communist. He signed with his own blood to become a Naxalite and then engaged in atrocities against the rich. They would take from the rich and get violent. That was their way of, of leveling things. By the time he was 18, 20 years old, he was an alcoholic, atheist, violent man, then has an arranged marriage with another poor woman. She's a Christian. They're praying for him, although he was considered to be utterly worthless. In his early to mid-20s, Jesus appears to him, and he gets radically, instantly born again, goes out on the street and starts preaching Jesus. Instantly, just like that. So he reached out to me in 93. He was so new, even traveling to America. The first time he saw an ATM machine, he thought there was a little person inside of it dispensing money. The first time he was in a car where the seatbelts just come on you, he panicked. He thought something was taking over. He went completely raw. This is all new to him. I remember when I brought him into New York City, I was going to be preaching for David Wilkerson at Times Square Church and brought him into New York City. And he's just literally walking around, just stunned the buildings. He'd never seen anything like it. God has used this man in, in ways beyond anything I know with any person on the planet in terms of just coming out of one human being. And I'm going to tell you the relational part in a moment. He reached out to me in 93 I agreed to go preach there, do leaders meetings in the day, preach open air meetings at night. Uh, they have, there's the main center, but they've done work all over India and in different nations. Uh, they have fed and clothed and cared for thousands of orphans. They have the leading school now in, in, in their district. Uh, this is the main center, they have a nursing school. They've done big meetings. This is uh, one meeting where we're preaching to 10,000 pastors and, and leaders. And then above all, the tribal regions and, and unreached people groups. Our first trip, we went to a place called Paderu in, in the mountains of Andhra Pradesh. It was hours up this really dangerous road up the side of a mountain. I remember we stopped at one point on the side of the road. There were monkeys in the trees. When we got to the place we were staying, these rundown little guest houses, we were told, do not go out on your own at night because there was a man-eating tiger on the loose. I'm talking about jungle the most primitive place I'd ever been. Thousands of villages, all of them unreached at that time. No gospel witness. Today, every single village has a church in it. Every single village. They have planted, they have planted more than 7,000 churches in tribal regions. 
at least five of the men that we have sent out to preach have been martyred. When they do water baptisms there, after the person affirms what they believe, they then ask them, are you willing to die for Jesus? Are you willing to give your last drop of blood, your last breath for Jesus? That's when they baptize you. That's the level of devotion. And they know they may be killed, but it's the gospel. They know they may be beaten. It's the gospel. They go. That's the devotion level. And he's reproduced this work in, in other countries. It's, it's mind-boggling to see. So why do I talk about this? Early on in our relationship, actually during a, a difficult time when we didn't seem to be on the same page during a long trip there, he said to me, brother, God has brought us together in a strategic relationship, Jew and Gentile. In fact, when I'm there every year, at least one of the meetings, he has me pronounce the priestly blessing in Hebrew, at least one of the meetings. And he said, brother, our ministry was very small before God connected us. He said, since the connection, it has been supernaturally blessed because God is showing the importance of Jew and Gentile working together in Jesus. He has recognized that. I said, brother, you have children in the orphanage as young as three, getting up at 4.30 in the morning and spending an hour with God in the word and prayer. Some of them praying with tears for loss. I said, that's why your ministry has expanded the way it has. He goes, brother, I'm telling you, it's the relationship we have together. He's sure of it. He would get up here and tell you he's sure of it. By the way, years ago, he purchased, when real estate values were really low in his city, purchased half of a mountain. So if you cut it down the middle, half of a mountain with a vision of building a prayer tower, so a, a prayer center and the highest part of the mountain because the Hindus like to have the, the highest parts. So this would be the highest in the city. A prayer tower for day and night prayer, a home for elderly Christians impoverished to retire, a home for mentally disabled children, and then a state-of-the-art hospital. I think he had the property 17, 18 years before the government finally gave him permission to build. He needs several million dollars to do it. He, he's actually put a tent on the property where he has lived for months just praying and seeking God for breakthroughs. So if you happen to have some dispensable millions, this is a good place to give it. I consider it the privilege of a lifetime. I've been there 27 times with him. We had a missed two years with COVID. I can't wait to go back in December. But he says the supernatural fruit of his ministry and the blessing he's had around the world is because of our kingdom relationship. Think of that. Let me go a little further here. Some of the children in the children's home. How about this one? You want to talk about an unexpected relationship. And I'm going to go through these next few very quickly. I know Scott Nugent as Kelly. Everybody else knows Scott Nugent as Scott. You say, what in the world is this about? Well, I became familiar with Scott slash Kelly Nugent when I saw this article in Newsweek. This is Newsweek, right? This is not a right-wing Christian publication. Scott Nugent, we need balance when it comes to gender dysphoric kids I would know. What's the article about? This is Scott Nugent. That's the only name I knew at this point. Reaching out saying there's this craze now. It's swept across America to get young kids to say, hey, I'm trapped in the wrong body. 
And then you start put, putting these kids on, on hormones to stop the onset of puberty. And then you can have girls as young as 15, 16 have full mastectomies. And now they're 18, 19 thinking, what did I do? What in a, or I sterilize, I'm, I'm ster boys, I'm, they're sterilized, they can't have children. And it was, what did I do? So he's saying, I had sex change surgery. I know the horrors of it. Stop this madness. And also saying no amount of sex change surgery can turn a man into a woman or a woman into a man. Uh, shouting this. So I, I read this article, I'm blown away. And the article ends saying, hey, I'll work with anyone, evangelical, liberal, Democrat, whoever, Republican. This is urgent. We have to join together for the kids. So I write an article commending her, this is a woman, identifying as a man, but a woman, commending her for writing this article and saying, hey, you're looking for someone to work with? I'm stretching out my hand, let's work together. So she gets hold of the article, contacts me and says, hey, let's work together for the kids. We've got to do this for the sake of the children. So I thought, okay, does she fully know who I am? Because I'm considered like transphobe, homophobe, evil guy. I'm on all these hit lists, watch lists from these major gay activist organizations and others. I've been on their list for years. And uh, so she writes back and says, you know, I can't work with you after all because you believe in conversion therapy. I said, hey, well, hang on. That's not what we call it, but I, I do believe that by, by the power of God and, and by divine counsel, people can change from gay to straight. I do believe, she says, sorry, we can't work together then. A few weeks later, I get another email and she says, she says, what am I doing? I said, I'll work with anyone. I stretched out my hand. You're the first one that responded and I rejected you. So she said, let's work together. So we have become good friends. She is 100% fine with me referring to her as she, as Kelly. In fact, when I write, I write to Kelly. And she is fully who she is. I don't get an email without all kinds of profanity in it because that's just how she talks. That's just natural. She came on my radio show. That's how we build it. And I said, you got to remember, it's a Christian broadcast. So she had a profanity button. Every time she was like, she just ring the buttons like, oh. So the button rang through the show. Look, hear me now. Matt Walsh with Daily Wire put out a documentary called What is a Woman? It's getting a lot of attention and it features Kelly Nugent on it. Kelly is now, in my view, the loudest voice in the nation shouting out against the madness of transitioning kids. And in 2009, I was on Tyra Banks, 2009, and they were bringing out little children, seven, eight years old. This is Jane. Jane used to be Johnny, but now Jane is a girl. Seven, eight years old, parading them on the stage. I was the only voice that day speaking out against it, saying, you're experimenting with children. The hormone blockers, you're experimenting with children. So now, one of the, 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 the doctor, the medical doctor herself or himself, male to female, that was on the show with me that was trying to shut me down. I'm saying you're experimenting with children because Kelly Nugent has called these people out. Now this same doctor that was opposing me on Tyra Banks is publicly saying we shouldn't do this to the children. It's a little bit late, but now saying this. So to honor me, look at this. 
This is, this is her uh, organization, TRE Voices. Evangelical Dr. Michael Brown, we don't agree on homosexualities, but we adults beyond that to save gender-confused kids from modern conversion therapies. So she made me the honorary evangelical director at her organization. And then look at this. Tyra Banks, you owe Dr. Brown an apology. He was right about trans and kids. Who would expect something like this? This is strategic relationship. She being who she is, me being who I am. She knows we have people praying for her. When she was on my show, we got tons of responses of people loving on her and saying, thank you for your courage and boldness. We love you, we're praying for you. She's got almost no hate mail. A flood of people praising her for the stances she's taking. The hate mail comes from the other side. And look at this, she even made this shirt for me. TREvoices.org, Dr. Michael Brown, the original screamer. <laughs> Crazy, huh? All right, I'm almost done, but I want to encourage you. There are times when we never join light and darkness together in terms of joining our soul and spirit with someone that opposes who we are in God. But you better believe we work side by side with people from all kinds of backgrounds for the common good. And you do not know the strategic relationships God will bring up that can enable you to touch people you never touch. All right, so because I'm a public figure, we have people that reach out to us all the time and can I give them time? Can I speak to them by the phone? Can I answer questions? And the vast majority of the time we can't, just there's only so much time in a day. I get this email. This is 2014. Uh, a young man reaches out to me, a total stranger, and it, it gets through that it reaches our administrator and she thinks there's something to this. So, so she contacts him and he writes back, Cindy, this is January 28th, 2014. Thank you for responding. My request is a little different than typical. I came across Dr. Brown while watching CNN. As I listened to him, my spirit leaped. I was on Piers Morgan doing this debate. I heard in him the righteousness my heart has been desiring. As I began to look into him, I saw the ministry of the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, dealing with hypergrace, other things. All that to say, I would like to be in relationship with Dr. Brown. I would like to partner in any way to reach more young people, but more than anything, the opportunity for mentorship at any level Dr. Brown chooses. I know this is a lot, but I feel like being honest and direct goes a long way. My spirit is drawn toward Dr. Brown and his ministry. I would humbly ask the opportunity for a phone call with him if he's able and willing, and we can see where things go from there. Thank you for your time. So Cindy gave it to me. She's a spiritual woman. She said, Mike, I think there's something to this. So I take it and pray about it and actually go talk to my wife Nancy. I said, hey, Helen, how do you feel about this? Because she always sees a red light and, and a warning sign. She goes, I feel, I feel right about it. So we make contact and, um, oh, let me just tell you who that was. That was Landon Schott who uh, reached out. And you have to remember, he was just doing traveling youth ministry then. The idea of him planning a church never came up in discussion then. Not, not even a thought of it. Being in Fort Worth, not a thought of it. Having a ministry school, having a network of churches, not a thought of it. But God knew. God said, we get to be in this together. Isn't that wild? <laughs> Praise God. And, you know, many times before his message, he'll shoot me a note, just wanted to check on Hebrew or, or get, get my view on a particular passage. 
So, so I, it's just that every time I hear, I always try to prioritize getting right back to him because I know this is a strategic relationship that God gave me to pour into. And, you know, of course, the most important of all, uh, 1974, uh, a 19-year-old Jewish atheist I met. Young woman, been an atheist since she was eight years old, really looked down on religious people as weak. And uh, we met, of all places, an Italian Pentecostal church. How she ended up walking in that building is, is completely God's hand, the most unlikely set of circumstances, and the last place she would normally go. But we met, and as they really say, the rest is history. That was us getting married in 1976. God radically came into her life. The God she did not believe in radically came into her life. She got radically born again. God brought us together. And, and she has been the perfect soulmate for me. I was on radio one day and somebody who really thought highly of me called in and said, Dr. Brown, with everything you do, how do you stay so humble? And to be honest, you know yourself well. It's not hard to be humble when you know yourself. It's like, <laughs> get over it. But I, as I'm saying it, I'm seeing all these messages pop up, emails coming in, text messages to me, other staff messaging through the, the radio network. And they're all just sending one thing, Nancy, 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 Nancy. As we joke, she's the, the lead weight that keeps my helium balloon from flying away. She is completely unimpressed with anything I've ever done. Doesn't matter how many books or artists, she's like, you have a gift. You can't, you can't take credit for that, you have a gift. It's like, but, but I work hard with the gift. Oh, she, she praised me the other day. I always tell people, if a worker at the house or someone in our ministry, if she ever praises you, mark, write it down, frame it in gold, because that may be once in a year, 10, a lifetime. Ryan, you need to hear this. She told me the other day when I came back from the grocery store that I picked really good onions. <laughs> yes, yes. More than any human being on the planet, she is the ultimate truth teller. And as much as I have real strong backbone when it comes to moral, ethical things that I cannot compromise, behind my backbone is her backbone. Like I could, I could never betray God or her. You know what I'm saying? It's that, it's that deep. And if I say, honey, I mean, literally at one book, I wrote 300 pages in three weeks. Honey, look at this. God helped me write 300 pages in three weeks. You know what her response would be? You obviously weren't praying much. If you had that much time to write, you weren't praying. The only thing she cares about is that I get lost in God, that I, I shut myself in with God and become more of a man of God. Nothing else matters to her. And here God brings us together in the most unlikely setting. So I want you to stand with me. I, I, I wanna encourage you to recognize kingdom relationships when God set them up and, and to, to draw on them. But I also sense deeply, and Pastor Chris is gonna come up and, and help lead us in this in a moment. There are fractured relationships here that God wants to fix. After going through a very difficult split over 20 years ago, I was with a godly couple, these counselors, and they said, they said, we want you to go through the people that you feel hurt you 
and forgive them. They said, we know you've already done this, but do it again. I said, Lord, I forgive this one, this one, this one. Suddenly I got to one, I started sobbing. I had no idea how deeply that broken relationship affected me. There's some people you need to forgive from your heart. There's some people you need to open the door for reconciliation. There's some you need to reach out. There's some you don't know how to see it restored, but God wants to work a miracle because those relationships are of eternal importance. So we're gonna pray. I have to make a fairly quick exit to, to get out and then get over to catch a flight. But Pastor Chris is gonna lead us. The ministry team is gonna come up. We're gonna go back to worshiping God, opening our hearts, and God is going to miraculously work in some of you to change your attitude, to begin to restore something. As you go before God, others are gonna be touched. And in the days ahead, some of you are gonna hear from people you haven't heard from in years. Let it alert you. This is a God thing. He's doing something. Father, we put this in your hands. God, who made us for relationship, work miraculously to restore today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Mercy Culture Church. If this podcast has blessed you, we'd like to encourage you to share it with a friend. To learn more about us, find us on social media and online at mercyculture.com. 